0: My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to John chapter 10. And we are starting a new series called Life verses and we're going to look, Lord willing, we're going to look not only at these rich and glorious passages in God's Word, but along the way we're going to try to tell some of the stories of members of our faith family uh, who have been changed by the, the power of God's Word. God's Word is living, it is active, it brings hope where there's despair, it brings freedom where there was bondage, it is powerful to change us and... And and John 10 made Jesus look bigger in my eyes. This is is one of my own life verses. In the year 1998, I was in a dark place spiritually. I had had drifted into the error of thinking that my relationship with God was based on my performance, not on His grace. And so I was trying really, really hard to live the Christian life as a perfect believer, obeying every single word that was here. But then all the while, I felt this kind of low-grade, maybe you've experienced this before, this sort of constant low-grade fever of guilt. And, and I couldn't shake it. It was always there. And the, the problem with fever physically is that it makes you sluggish, right? Right? Well, the same thing happened spiritually. There was this low-grade fever of guilt, and it made me sluggish against my own desires, but I felt sluggish. I felt heavy. I felt tired. I was exhausted, right? And if your Christianity is fixated on your performance and your performance is sluggish, then you're not headed in a good direction in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. It doesn't lead to good places. So you catch me in 1999, the year after this began. You catch me in 1999, And the joy and buoyancy that I had had in Christ in my teenage years and in the very beginning of my 20s was almost impossible to see. And I had this kind of coping mechanism to deal with the guilt that was there that I couldn't shake. I started to think that the guilt was maybe a good thing that the guilt was, was proof that I was serious about holiness, I was serious about producing for God and obeying God and my guilt, in other words, I was thinking my guilt doesn't necessarily tell me something bad about myself as much as it might be telling something bad about all the people who don't feel as heavy, as guilty as, as I do. Maybe they're having the problem, not me. Maybe if other Christians took Christianity as seriously as I do, we'd all be weighed down by guilt all the time, but it would send us, if we could channel it in a good direction, it would maybe motivate us to move more eagerly in God's direction and toward obedience to his word. That very year, in 1999, a close friend of mine, Bruce, who's now a missionary in Ukraine, a lifelong best friend of mine, and he, he confronted me. He saw me in a small group meeting that we were in together and I tore into another believer. It, it got so awkward. We took over the meeting and it was mainly me. Sadly, he was a first time visitor to our small group and I wasn't the small group leader. And we got into this debate and the debate was actually over grace versus law. And I was the law guy and he was the grace guy. And I was actually, at this moment in my Christian life, I was actually, and I'm saying self-consciously suspicious of the word grace. You said grace, I said cheap grace. That was the first association with grace, was cheap grace. And I became so obsessed with holiness. And, and to me, at that point in my life, in 1999, if grace was your favorite word as a Christian, I considered you to probably be a slacker. And, and I read authors who helped me go further into this. I read authors who gave the impression that the kingdom of God was extremely small and getting ever smaller. Matter of fact, it felt like, when you come to the end of the book, maybe the only believers in the world were me and the author. It was just, it was extremely small, how tight it was, how small the group of Christians on this earth really were. And looking back, Christianity, it, I didn't feel this in that moment, but looking back on the dryness that was there, my, my soul was so chapped, it was so chafed, I was so dry, and I felt like the person who, have you ever seen the person who spins all the plates, right, and they're running back and forth, they get one plate going, they get another plate going over here, and then they're back and forth, and they put another plate, and eventually they've got eight plates spinning, and they're just running, 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 back and forth, just keeping the plates up and spinning, and, and I, I thought, God loves plate spinners. That's what we do, that's why we're here. He loves to he smiles bigger, the more plates we get going, the bigger he smiles. And when you start to think that God loves plate spinners, the sound of falling plates will mess you up. And that's what was happening in nineteen ninety nine. But God. <laughs> in in nineteen ninety nine the Lord brought me two passages, including John 10. Ephesians 2, Philippians 3, and I started to remember things I had heard as a child when my spirit was buoyant with, with joy in Jesus. I remember God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes, believes, not spinning plates, whoever Believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. In that same year, after that, in that same season, some friends invited my wife and I to attend a, a Christian conference with them. And we, we stood at that conference, and the song that came up in the very first worship service of the conference was a, a hymn that I had never heard before. We, I grew up, we sang certain hymns, but there were other ones I wasn't familiar with in my church upbringing. And this one I had never seen before. It's become one of my favorite hymns. And the text was this. I read this on the screen for the first time. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And I remember that like it was yesterday. I I stood there looking at that screen. My lips were shaking so much I couldn't actually sing the words, but I just looked at the words through tears. And assurance of salvation for those who trust in Christ was a new idea for me in 1999. I felt like, maybe you've experienced this before, I felt like I had saved again. You ever read something in scripture, you know you're already a Christian, but it's like, how did I never see this and feel it the way I feel it now. I feel like I'm getting saved all over again. That, obviously, that's not technical language. That's not theologically careful language. The point of assurance, of, of course, is that our justification lasts forever. That's the point. You don't have it one day and not have it the next day, and then you get it again. That, that's not the issue. God doesn't update the status of your salvation on a day-to-day basis. He's not like, hey, check in at the end of the day. We'll find out how we are. That, that's not the nature of this, this thing called salvation. I, I hope in moments of your life, and maybe this is what we heard when we saw so many life verses pouring in as we asked you for moments where Jesus changed you through his word. I hope you have moments where you have felt like you're seeing Christ for the first time. Like it's brand new, like you're a day old in Jesus. You know, where Jesus, it looks like he got bigger. I know technically speaking he doesn't grow, But it's just, you saw him in a new light and he just looks bigger than he ever has before. Bigger, brighter, more beautiful, more powerful, more awesome than he ever did before. And it was 1999 that this became a life verse. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You know, the trouble with trying to earn favor with God by performance is how do you know you've performed well enough? Right, isn't that that sort of barbed question for us when we start to think that we're, our salvation depends on our works? Christianity, here's what, here's what Christianity does. Christianity puts the work of Jesus in the spotlight, not our own spiritual performance. There is one who's on stage, it's Jesus. He's the one who fully achieves righteousness. That, that's what, by the way, makes Christianity different from every other religion on the planet. Jesus is the only one in the spotlight. He's the one who's doing all the work. He accomplishes our salvation lock, stock, and barrel from from front to back. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Religion, what does religion say? Religion says, if you want to go to heaven, jump through these spiritual hoops. How often? Every day. How long? For the rest of your life. How will I know if I've jumped through enough spiritual hoops? When it's too late. But keep trying. You'll find out at the judgment if you've jumped through enough spiritual hoops. Friends, there's no assurance in that, but there is assurance in. Christian faith in the way that the Bible conceives of our salvation, it, there is certainty, there is assurance. John 10 offers us something better. There are four striking images of Jesus in John chapter 10. And when you bring them together, you reach a life-changing conclusion. And I think the life-changing conclusion that you reach is the one that's at the very bottom of Christianity, the very foundation of Christianity itself. The conclusion you reach is simply this, two words. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and he saves because number one, Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd. So he's got this extended metaphor thing working here in verse one through six, just follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen here. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate But climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Again, he's using these metaphors, and they're not quite grasping it. Skip down to verse 11. Now it becomes really clear I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. So there it is. There's that extended metaphor. You've got basically four roles in this kind of little skit that Jesus has drawn up for them. And the four roles are there are sheep, there are wolves, there are false shepherds, which Jesus calls hired hands. And then there is a good shepherd. And if you're the religious leaders, and they're there, by the way, they're the ones who are picking up the rocks in verse 31, because they hate what he's saying. If you're one of the religious leaders, you're calling dibs on good shepherd. That's, that's gonna be our role, right? In this skit that you've drawn up, we get to be the good shepherd because the people of Israel are our sheep. And Jesus says, actually, I was thinking of you guys in verse one, in the role of thieves and robbers. Right, so you can see here he's meddling. He's like, That's the part that you guys get to play. He, in other words, he is pushing on the religious establishment of the day. And he said, their interest in the sheep was only self-serving, which is why he also casts them in another role. He says, you'll have another part here coming soon in verse 12, you guys are the hired hands. You're the ones who run away Because you're false shepherds, you don't actually care about the sheep, you just care about preserving yourselves. So when wolves come, there you go, off off you go. You're the hired hands. So two quick points here under this main idea. Number one, God didn't create us so that we could perform for him. That's not the shape of the Christian life. He didn't create us so that we could perform for him. The religious leaders had Had ingrained in the minds of the people, you can't live without our religious system. This system that we've handed to you, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. No one goes to the Father except through this religious system. No one gets to God without jumping through these set of assigned, appointed hoops. How often will you have to jump through them? Every day. How long? For the rest of your life. When will we know if we jump through enough of them? When it's too late, but keep trying. That was the feel of that religious system, right? And Jesus comes along and says, nope, that's not the way it goes. That's, that's not the salvation God the Father's bringing to the world and bringing to his people. God didn't create us so that we could perform for him. Next point, God made us so that he could provide for us. That's the shape of the Christian life, of the covenant people of God. God providing for his people. That's what a shepherd does. He leads them out, they follow him. He's he's leading them out to green pastures, right? Think about the picture that's in Psalm 23, Psalm that we know so well. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? Here's Here's the consequence of God being our shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's what the shepherd does for his people. He is restorative, he is feeding, he is giving us drink and nutrients and sustenance. It's what he does. Let me ask you this question, is that that what Christianity sounds like when we tell other people about it? Here's, Here's what God, our Father, does. Here's what Jesus, our good shepherd, does. You know, there are some versions of Christianity that sound give you the impression that Jesus isn't so much a good shepherd as he's, he's, a, he's a circus trainer. right? He's got that little switch thing and he swats the elephant and then suddenly she puts her, she puts her feet on the box and everybody goes nuts and all the applause goes. It's like that that's, that's not the picture we have. That, that's not the grace of God shown to us in the gospel. It's not all about our performance. When did we make it about our performance? Performance, right? That's what I needed to hear in 1999. Somebody needs to say, Matt, when did it all become about your performance for God? You jumping through hoops, you spinning plates? When did you get that idea? Where where is that here? Where does that take center stage in the Christian life? I had fallen into the same hole that the Galatian believers were falling into when the Apostle Paul asked them a very barbed question. Here's the question he asked them Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Galatians 3, verse 3. Paul's saying, in other words, he's saying, the message I'm hearing coming from you guys isn't the one that you were singing about three years ago when this church was planted in Acts chapter 13. What has happened to you? You started buoyant with hope and joy in Jesus and the Spirit was at work and suddenly it's all about you? It's all about your spiritual activity. it's all about circumcision, everybody's gotta get it. The Gentiles are out because they're not in on the circumcision thing, right? In other words, it's almost like Paul is saying, you grew up singing this different song than the one that you're singing right now. Maybe some of you grew up in, in church like I did and one of the songs that we used to sing was this. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there, he's talking about at the cross. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Paul's saying, in effect, three years ago, that's the song you were singing. What happened? What happened? You began in the Spirit, now you're being made perfect By the flesh, Paul sounds a lot like my friend Bruce. What happened to you? When did you become a different person? When did you become so tight-fisted, right? If we don't keep Jesus at the center, Christianity becomes this tight-fisted, angry place. And people around looking from the outside in get the impression Jesus is the circus trainer, right? He swats us and gets us moving rather than he's a good shepherd who leads us who changes us from the inside out. He's leading us into life. He's leading us to water. He's leading us to pasture. He's making you lie down and rest. Weary souls find rest in Jesus. Jesus is the true shepherd, number two. Jesus is the way to life. Jesus is the way to life. Verse seven. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. He says it again. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to kill, to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. This is in your notes. When God opens our eyes to the truth, we realize Jesus doesn't steal life, he gives it. He doesn't steal life, he gives life. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is sort of picking fights with these religious leaders. His word to the self-appointed gatekeepers of religion is this this whole system you guys have concocted is bent. It's, It's not the original article. You've hijacked a beautiful story and turned it into a living nightmare. This wasn't the story from the beginning. And Jesus said to them, you put weights around the people's necks. By the way, you aren't wearing those weights, but you sell them to the people, right? Re- religion in that context was, uh, was good business. It's almost like Jesus is saying this, this burden that you put on their, their backs and you don't wear it on your own backs, it it's almost paints this picture of the reality of what was going on in that first century religious context, the guilt of the people was job security for the Pharisees. As long as they keep feeling awful, business is booming and the church is full every Sunday because they're guilty and they need us. And Jesus said, put the hoops and the switches and the boxes away. I'm the way to God. Verse 9, I'm the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And what's the by me? We read other places and it's by believing in me. Not performing for me. You enter by me and you will be saved. I got into a conversation. You know, just think about the exclusiveness of that statement. I am the gate. There's no way to God except you enter by me. This conversation that I had with someone recently who said, um, He said, I believe in Jesus. I believe that He's Messiah. I believe He's the way to God, but He's my way to God. Other people have other ways to God, other people have other Messiahs. And, uh, I said, can I ask you a couple questions just to draw you out and and hear more about where you're coming from there because um, I understand when other religions uh, might be willing to say that there are many ways and Jesus is one of them and they can say that and still be consistent within their own religious system and understanding, But, but your Messiah is Jesus. You claim that your Messiah is Jesus, so what if I could, I him, what, what if I could take you to places in the Gospels where your Messiah says there are no other Messiahs? Will, will you let your Messiah speak for himself about other Messiahs and trust your Messiah? Will we live consistently with this Christian worldview? Will we understand that Jesus is the center of everything? That is why the central issue is did Jesus come to earth? Did he die on the cross? Did he rise again from the dead? Because if he did live on this earth, die on the cross, and rise again from the dead, then based on his teaching, he put dead end signs on every other street. And he said, I'm the only way. And because he's the only one who rose again from the dead, we believe him when he said he is the only way. Look, Christians insist that Jesus is the only way to God, not because we're narrow-minded, Christians insist that Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus insisted on it first. He's the one who said, John fourteen six, I am the way, not a way, not one of many ways, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except this way. I'm the door, I'm the gate. Pick your metaphor. You come through me, you get there. You don't come through me, there's no no way forward. With a holy God, Jesus is the shepherd. Everything we need, he supplies. This point we're talking about here. Jesus is the gate, he's the door. We come to God through him. And, And third, this third picture, Jesus is the savior. Jesus dies to save the sheep, And that's what you see there in verse 11. You see it also in verse 15, but right there in verse 11, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There there is glorious, this glorious gospel word that occurs throughout the New Testament. It's the Greek word pair, and it means in behalf of, it's often translated for, and it's the word that's right here in verse 11, it's in verse 15, in behalf of. He, the good shepherd, lays down his life on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for his sheep. That's what's being taught here. During the Last Supper, you may remember, Jesus breaks the bread before his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. He breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is for, who pair, which is in behalf of you. I get broken, you walk free. My body for yours. My body on behalf of yours. It's the great exchange. He takes our sin upon himself. He dies our death in our place. That's our salvation. He offers us his righteousness. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. Who would have come up with this kind of story? Could it possibly be that good? And it is. That's why we call it good news. It is that good. <laughs> no wonder John the Baptist, he has the, he has the role that would be envied by all the prophets who came before him he gets to introduce or sort of roll out the red carpet for the Savior himself. Everybody else for centuries said, he's coming and here's what he'll look like. He's coming and here's what he'll sound like. And John the Baptist says, there he is. He's right there. How is he gonna introduce Jesus to the world? He doesn't say, behold, the Lion of Judah. That'll come later. That aspect of his redemptive office will show up later. He doesn't say, behold, the teacher of Israel. He says what? Behold, the Lamb of God. Why? Because preeminently, that's why he's here. He's here to die, to atone for the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he atones for his people. He purchases our redemption. To John, that is the reason. To Jesus, that's the reason. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I'm here, Jesus said. We, we couldn't pay the debt that we owed to a holy God. All of our sins had piled up around us and we couldn't pay that down, We couldn't even begin to pay that down. Only someone who combined the things that Jesus combined in himself, only someone who combined absolute innocence with infinite worth could settle our debt. That's the glory of the gospel. Jesus combined absolute purity and innocence and infinite worth. And that's why we have hymns that say things like, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's the glory of the gospel. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. This is the next point in your notes. Jesus didn't die to help you save yourself. He died to save you. (laughs) Oh, it's that good. This is not an assistance program for us. It's accomplished. It is finished. He purchases his people. He died to save you. You think about the glory of the cross and the, The way in which that displays the love of God toward sinners. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter five. He said we can understand in this world, we can understand that a good person might die for another good person. And they might step in front of a bullet for somebody that they love or someone who's a hero in their life and they become a hero themselves. We, we can compute that in this world. What we don't understand is a person giving his life for rebels, for people who hate him, for the wicked, for sinners. And he says, that's the actual story. That's what ended up happening. God showed his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So can't you... Can't you believe that the one who would die for you loves you? Can't you believe that the one who would suffer in your place doesn't have some secret plan to ruin your life? That he can look you in the eye, the one who would intend to die on the cross for you can look you in the eye and say, when I say I have abundant life for you, I mean it. I'm not batting an eye, I'm not crossing my fingers behind my back, I'm gonna die for you. How many other ways can I convince you? Right, that's what the gospel says to the world. God's love is great. It does, Doesn't know, knowing the truth about what God has done for us in Christ make us want to run toward him? <laughs> it fuels faith. It, doesn't it make us want to give him control of everything in our lives? Want to follow after him? It's not a chore. You don't have to slap me with a switch. I'm running. My goodness, the love of Christ, Paul said, compels me. How could I run anywhere else? Look, Jesus is so much bigger than we think he is. Grace is so much better than we thought it was. Jesus is everything that we need, both now and into eternity. He is the true shepherd. He'll provide for us. He's the way to life. He doesn't steal life. He gives it. He, and then he dies for us in our place. He, he takes the worst part of your story the sin the brokenness he takes the collateral damage all of it he takes it and he puts it on his chest and he bears it in your place and and he rises again from the dead to give new life to his people that's the that's the central message of the scriptures he dies to save the sheep and finally Jesus calls and keeps his own he calls and keeps his own in verse 27 through 30, Jesus' sovereignty is showing, right? In so many places, often in the Gospels, his humanity is showing, which is why he's so often resisted, rejected, and argued with by many people who encountered him, which is why his own family members sometimes didn't believe in him and doubted him until he appeared to them resurrected, right? So his humanity was covering up his glory in so many days in the ordinary moments of his earthly existence, but his sovereignty peeks through every now and then, and one of them is right here in verse 27, look at it. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. <laughs> what powerful words Jesus says here. What confidence No one can take them from my hand. I'm giving them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Earlier in this chapter, we hear a similar sound. Look down in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Two, two points here that lead us to worship, lead us to see Jesus is bigger, more awesome, more powerful than we ever realized. Number one, Jesus is an omnipotent savior. Omnipotent just meaning all-powerful, capable. He can do it by himself. He can work unilaterally in his world and make stuff happen. He's an omnipotent savior. Verse 16, these words, they will listen to my voice. Don't you love it when Jesus talks like that? <laughs> I love it when Jesus talks like that. He, he doesn't say, there might be one flock, I'm sure hoping, I hope someday there's one flock, I hope so, I dream of a day where there's one shepherd. That is not the way Jesus is talking. He doesn't say in verse 16, I fully intend to bring in other sheep, we'll see if they come or not. He is not using if language, it's not a hypothesis, there's no question mark about what's gonna happen next. He says, I will speak, they will come. They will listen to my voice, there will be a flock, there will be one shepherd, they will listen. God's word will not return void. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of the attributes of God's voice and God's word. He says, God's word, he reaching for these metaphors, he says, His word is like a hammer that shatters rock in pieces. The hammer comes down and the hammer doesn't break, the rock breaks. Actually, whatever's under the hammer breaks. It's efficacious. It gets things done. It shatters things when it comes down. He says, he says it's, like water that comes, it's like water that comes down and the ground gets wet. It's like, it's like a, a pot that comes to boiling. It's like fire and everything melts before it. God's word it has that property of it gets things done. It doesn't return void. It accomplishes what it's sent out to do. One of my favorite psalms for that reason is Psalm 29. I love Psalm 29 because it's basically the resume of God's voice the resume of God's powerful word. Here's what it says. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders The Lord above the vast water, the voice of the Lord in power, the voice of the Lord in splendor, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon, the hardest cedars in the known world at the time. And he says, he speaks and it just splinters, just toothpicks the cedars of Lebanon Verse six, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare in his temple. All cry glory. <laughs> what an awesome thing, God's word. What an awesome thing, God's voice. And here's Jesus speaking, and he is the logos. He is the incarnate word. He has that kind of power in his voice. We, we pray, right? Just a moment ago, we're praying for the Bugner family. We pray for the nations regularly. Sunday in and Sunday out, we pray for the nations. And sometimes, maybe in our own hearts, we wonder, will it ever happen We hear reports of people who are working in hard to reach places in the world and we find out, guess what? Hard to reach places are still hard to reach. Update, they're still saying no. They're still resisting the gospel. It's still hard, clay, soil. Just picture our friends out there just with pickaxes just throwing it into the ground. It's just bouncing off. And maybe sometimes in our hearts we have these doubts of will it ever, will they ever believe And then we remember what Jesus says here. I have sheep that are not of this fold, that is that are not of Israel. I have sheep among the nations. I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. If we're ever tempted to think the resistance of the nations is stronger than the voice of an omnipotent shepherd, we read Revelation chapter one, for example, and, and you see John the Revelator, and he's just reaching for language. He, he's struggling to describe what's before his eyes in this vision, and he's struggling to describe it. And you can hear the way he's struggling by these words, as and like. It's like this, it's, it's like that. And he says this, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame his feet were, were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A, double-edged, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. That's Jesus that's the one who says, I have other sheep, I must bring them, they will come, they will come. You, you look at that picture in Revelation one and you just say wow, wow, Jesus is bigger, Jesus is awesome, try as they may to resist, the nations don't stand a chance his voice breaks cedars, even cedars of Lebanon. Jesus is bigger, he's, he's, he's mighty to save, he's sovereign. I think about this by way of illustration. My, um, my own mom, some of you have had a chance to meet my mom. She occasionally is here in summertime. summertime. My mom is, a, is an elegant woman. She is not gruff. Um, she, is, she is a class act. Uh, I'm a huge fan of my mom. She almost never raised her voice in our house. She never really had to. There was a kind of quiet authority, and she didn't. She didn't need to. But, um, but like every other mom, she had a mom voice. Right there were there were volume capacities that she could pull out when the time was right. Right, if for such a time as this, she could dig deep and and draw from places who knows where, but it would just suddenly just be this booming voice. And I, I had two friends on my street, particularly, my brother and I would play with Greg Bothman down the street, about six houses down on our left, and then Ryan Hennessy, who's about four houses down and across the street. So. When it was dinner time, we were, me and my brother were usually at one of their houses or we were at the end of the street, we had a dead end street and there was just a, there was a canal down there and so we could play around in the grass. So we were mostly outside, my brother and I and Greg and Ryan, and, um, and we didn't have cell phones for mom to text and she wasn't going to walk all the way down the street and find you. So, so what did she do when it was time for dinner? Mom voice. That's, that's what she did. She, she dug deep, she opened the front door, and she said one word, boys. That was it. She yelled boys, and we knew dinner, right? And to hear that voice at Ryan Hennessy's house, at Greg Bothman's house, to hear it was for a moment to think, maybe all the boys are coming, Right, it's just she yells boys and it's like you could hear it around the city. Some boy at the airport just starts walking toward Elmwood Parkway. It's just this voice just rings out. She used her mom voice and my brother and I came running. Well, Jesus in John 10, he has a shepherd voice. There's this special voice, this shepherd voice and when he uses it in John 10, here they come. They come running. They will listen. They will come. The voice of the shepherd drowns out every other voice. If you think that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, you aren't. If you think there is someone you know, someone that you love, or a nation that you're praying for that is beyond the reach of God's grace, they aren't. He can dig deep. He can, he can pull up that shepherd's voice. Charles Spurgeon said, if our Lord but stamp his feet, the nations will come. <laughs> <laughs> How awesome is that? How big and sovereign and powerful is our Savior? Christian friend, you think about this for your own life. Give, give God the glory for your salvation. Give God the credit for your salvation. You, you needed more than a nudge in the right direction. You, you needed more than Jesus sort of gently rapping at the door, saying, please, please, I I promise I'll make this worth your while. You needed more than that. The Apostle Paul says, here was the situation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and here's what happened. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Peter says it was the the word of God that brought you to life. He says, you have been born again through the living word of God. God spoke and you lived. James says, I agree, by his own will, he's talking about God, by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He spoke, you came. That's your salvation. And having been saved by the powerful word of God ringing in our ears, ringing in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus then does what? He puts his arms around his sheep in John 10 and he says, no one can get them now. They're mine. No one can snatch them out of my grip. They will never perish Oh, that's the assurance I needed in 1999. Matt, you're all right. I got you right here. You won't move, I've got you. And the Father's got you as well and no one's stronger than the Father. I and the Father are one. We've got you right here. You rest in our grip. Friend, our assurance of salvation is based on his work, not ours. (laughs) His work. Not ours, Jesus is huge in John 10. You know what he's doing? He hasn't even gone to the cross yet and he's calling it in advance. He's calling all the terms in advance. I'm coming for my sheep, I love my sheep, I'm gonna die for my sheep and you can bet I'm gonna bring them all home when this thing is done. He is large and in charge. John 10 doesn't show us a savior who hopes, it shows us a savior who saves. He saves, he, he takes your mess, he pays your debts, he calls your name, he gives you life, he keeps you safe, he gets you home. That's John 10. Let me say that again. He takes your mess, he pays your debts, he calls your name, he gives you life, he keeps you safe, he gets you home. He is author and finisher of our salvation. The last verse of that hymn that I heard for the first time in 1999, Speaks of this certainty of Him bringing us home. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song we'll sing Hallelujah! What a Savior! Just listen to it again. John 10, verse 28, I'll close by just reading this. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand.